Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like being spoon-fed the latest research straight through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered this week. First, tetracaine for corneal abrasions, then vasopressors through tiny IVs, after that, personalizing patients' pressors, then survival outcomes if you arrest with or without an acute PE, and finally, lidocaine for shoulder dislocation relocations. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the great Sam Parnell, Megan Breed, Bo Stubblefield, and Clay Smith. Now, the first article from this week was titled, Short-Term Topical Tetracaine is Highly Efficacious for the Treatment of Pain Caused by Corneal Abrasions, a double-blind randomized clinical trial out of the annals of emergency medicine. When something's coming at your face, it's pretty natural to, you know, maybe look at it, but that's a trap. It's exactly how you get a corneal abrasion, which happens to be the most common ocular injury seen in the acute care setting. Now, typically, as unpleasant as it sounds, these patients turn out fine, and these abrasions will heal on their own in 24 to 72 hours. But that doesn't mean it can't hurt like heck in the meantime. Luckily, regional anesthesia using anesthetics like tetracaine or propericaine is excellent at numbing the eye. The problem being with those anesthetics is that they have a terrible reputation of disrupting healing as well as causing ulceration, scarring, and even blindness. Now, the evidence behind these fears isn't strong. They're limited to case reports, some case series, and animal studies, but we know that a lot of animal studies are unrealistic compared to the human reality. So is this fear justified? Justified enough to take away an effective anesthetic. This was a prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of 111 patients, comparing at-home use of topical 0.5% tetracaine at one drop every 30 minutes PRN for 24 hours against using artificial tears as a placebo to treat uncomplicated corneal abrasions. Here, tetracaine had much lower pain scores, at only 1 out of 10, instead of 8 out of 10 in the placebo arm. And in accordance with lower pain scores, they also used less hydrocodone tablets, a median of 1 versus using 7 tablets in the placebo group for the first 24 to 48 hours. Most importantly, since we already would have figured that this would be good against pain, there was no serious adverse events reported, and no difference in the rates of complications or residual corneal abrasions that were still there after 24 to 48 hours at follow-up visits. The shortcomings of this study is that there were numerous exclusion criteria, and so only uncomplicated abrasions were included. Also, while the methods may have been thorough, this was still only just a small study out of a single center, without being powered enough to establish safety or really rule out adverse events. If you'd like to use tetracaine for your own practice, then you can probably expect it to be effective for pain. But be wary of the safety profile. Counsel your patients well on the risks and how to potentially avoid them, with good return instructions as well as close follow-up with ophthalmology. In a spoonful, short-term use of topical tetracaine for uncomplicated corneal abrasions was associated with much better pain control than placebo, and less opioid use on top of that, without affecting healing or causing serious complications. A larger study would still be needed to follow this up, though, to be much more reassuring. Then we have the second article, which was titled Complications of Vasopressor Infusion Through Peripheral Venous Catheters, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. May I just say that whomever named vasopressors had some real flair. It's a good name. And I like when important things have good names because we talk about them a lot. 
And vasopressors are a very important thing because their use and misuse is associated with really poor outcomes. Even just delaying the use of vasopressors increases mortality. One study showed that for each hour vasopressors are delayed, there may be an increase of mortality of 2% per hour. One important factor that may cause such delays is not having a central lining yet. But we've seen past studies that support using peripheral lines already, so let's see if that advice still stands. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of nine studies to include 1,800 patients. Three studies were done exclusively in the emergency department, and the rest were done in the ICU. The most common catheter size used was a 20-gauge catheter, and the most commonly running vasopressor was norepinephrine, with a maximum dose of 0.23 micrograms per kg per minute. There were 120 complications total recorded in this study, making up just 7% of the cohort that was affected by them. Almost all of these complications were minor, with only 4% of them being major complications like a peripheral venous thrombosis. The minor complications were mostly infiltrations and erythema. Now, unfortunately, the authors did not identify any patient demographics or factors that could be used to predict complications. Interestingly, though, there was a downward trend to these complications over time, being that studies that were done after 2016 reported only a 5% complication rate, while studies that were done before 2010 had a five times higher rate of complications. Do we have POCUS to thank? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Either way, though, if you've already done your volume resuscitation, I think that peripheral vasopressors can be started in the emergency department for shock while you're waiting to get a central line in. In a spoonful from the top of our evidence pyramid, a systematic review and meta-analysis has shown low rates of complications for vasopressors through peripheral IVs. Try using at least a 20-gauge catheter. And following that, we have the third article titled Relative Hypotension and Adverse Kidney-Related Outcomes Among Critically Ill Patients with Shock, a multi-center prospective cohort study out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. When acute kidney injury makes it onto your problem list, odds are it's going to be followed up with the phrase likely pre-renal, and then you'll put them on some fluids. For this reason, among others, we know that hyperperfusion to the kidneys is just objectively bad. And when supporting a critically ill patient with hypotension, the kidneys are most certainly at risk due to this. The current approach is kind of a one-size-fits-all to mean arterial pressure, but perhaps if we were able to tailor map to the patient, then we could have a little bit better care. This was a prospective multi-center study of 302 critically ill patients, at least 40 years old, with non-hemorrhagic shock who needed at least four hours of vasopressor support. They measured the association between hypotension and acute kidney injury or major adverse kidney events within 14 days. Now this gets a little bit complicated, but bear with me. They measured relative hypotension by comparing the patient's pre-illness baseline mean perfusion pressure and the perfusion pressures achieved during their critical illness for which vasopressors were needed. Here that mean perfusion pressure is defined as MAP minus central venous pressure. In order to get an idea of relative hypotension, baseline perfusion pressures were estimated for each patient, using prior blood pressure readings, a prior right heart catheterization, or echocardiographic measurements. If none of these were available, then they were assigned a value based on averages stratified for the patient's factors. Now, for every percentage increase in time-weighted average mean perfusion pressure deficit, the adjusted odds of significant AKI increased by 5.6% and by 5.9% for major adverse kidney events in 14 days. 
So that's a pretty significant amount of kidney injuries. We're talking at least about 6% per percentage indifference. And that would be a big effect size if we could eliminate it. Unfortunately, calculating mean perfusion pressures is kind of hard. It'd be much easier if we could just use MAP. And luckily, MAP was similarly correlating to adverse kidney events. The editorialists for this study compared personalized pressure management to adjusting vent settings for ideal body weight. And so when you put it that way and you're dealing with critical care, it makes it kind of hard to argue with. It makes a lot of sense. In a spoonful, personalized medicine is the future. Adjusting vasopressor management for patient baseline parameters may have the potential to improve kidney outcomes, and I would love to see this data applied. Following that, we have the fourth outcome, which was titled Characteristics and Outcomes of Cardiac Arrest Survivors with Acute Pulmonary Embolism out of the Journal of Resuscitation. People who have PEs kind of fall into two groups. There are those who are hemodynamically stable, which have low 30-day mortalities, and those who are not hemodynamically stable with circulatory shock, which have quite high mortality rates. This high-risk group is estimated to account for between 6 and 13% of out-of-hospital and in-hospital cardiac arrests. So despite this large proportion of patients suffering from high mortality rates, cardiac arrests due to pulmonary embolism are not very well studied. These authors sought to compare cardiac arrest survivors who suffered PE compared to those who arrested for other causes. This was a single-center prospective cohort study that included consecutive adult patients with cardiac arrest who received CPR and survived more than 24 hours post-ROSC. This group totaled almost 1,000 patients, roughly 300 in the in-hospital arrest group and 700 in the out-of-hospital arrest group. And from all of these patients together, 8.7% of patients were diagnosed with an acute PE based on history, clinical findings, and then confirmed with the CTA. As expected, the majority of PEs had echo findings of right ventricular dysfunction, strain, and dilation. Predictors for mortality from this study were age, female sex, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, and kind of weirdly targeted temperature management. For the primary outcome of mortality, it was not higher in the group with pulmonary embolism diagnoses compared with those who did not have a pulmonary embolism. Additionally, there was no difference in mortality in PE patients who received thrombolytics or not. So, Although this study was limited by being retrospective, and there are likely components of survival and selection bias at play, it does help us characterize this group of patients and highlights the need for more studies. In a spoonful, survivors of cardiac arrest due to PE did not have worse mortality than those without PEs, and thrombolytics didn't seem to have an effect either. Now at last, the last article, which is titled, Can Acute Shoulder Dislocations Be Reduced Using Intraarticular Local Anesthetic Infiltration as an Alternative to Intravenous Analgesia with or Without Sedation, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Injecting a bunch of lidocaine into something to stop it from hurting is a pretty familiar concept, and it turns out that it might work well for shoulder dislocation reductions. Very helpfully, the joint space actually becomes much easier to hit with a needle when the shoulder is dislocated. So for adults, you can feel for the lateral acromion, move about 2 centimeters inferiorly, and then insert a 22-gauge needle about 2 to 3 centimeters in. Aspirate, and then inject 10 cc's of 1% lidocaine. It should be that easy. This study was a shortcut review that found 11 studies on intraarticular lidocaine for shoulder dislocations. Nine of those studies were RCTs. Now keep in mind that this study that we're reviewing right now was not a systematic review, nor a meta-analysis. Evidence was conflicting whether intraarticular lidocaine reduced pain, but overall the reduction of pain seemed to be similar to sedation. 
In terms of patient satisfaction, sedation was actually preferred, and first-try success was also higher in the sedated patients. Where lidocaine did win out was in the emergency department length of stay and cost. Also, there was more adverse events in the sedation group, such as vomiting and respiratory depression. So while patients might not prefer it per se, intraarticular lidocaine might be a really good adjunct for these patients. In a spoonful, when comparing intraarticular lidocaine to sedation for shoulder dislocation reductions, the lidocaine group had similar amounts of pain, fewer complications, lower cost, and shorter lengths of stay. Patients still preferred to be sedated, though. And that wraps up. That's the whole bit. Let's do a quick, rapid review of everything we covered today. First, tetracaine did well to control short-term corneal abrasion pain and decreased opioid use as well, without doing any harms. But a larger study would be more reassuring. Second, more good news, vasopressors started through a peripheral catheter have low rates of serious complications and probably get your patient's pressors faster. Next, relative hypotension may cause more kidney injury. If we can determine what a patient's own personalized ideal pressures would be, then we might be able to cater to that patient's needs and prevent some kidney injuries. Fourth, PE or not, cardiac arrest patients seem to fare just as well. And lastly, intraarticular lidocaine for shoulder dislocation reductions is cheaper, faster, has less complications, and doesn't cause more pain than sedation. Patients probably prefer to be sedated, though. Now, you've already earned them, and we offer them CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at the website as well, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.